This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program. I've always believed that God puts people in our lives for a reason. In this extended episode of Along the Way, I am more convinced of it now than I ever have been. At a Knights of Columbus conference in New Haven, I met my guest and we became fast friends. Hearing his story, I wondered how he could maintain his sense of humor and joy despite the tragedy he had lived through. Joining me along the way with one of the best explanations into the mystery of suffering is my friend, Pat King. Pat, welcome. Thank you, Dave. How you doing? I am so glad to see you, man. We, you know, we've had a number of guys come on from out there in Idaho. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. You guys are all been great. I mean, uh, Sean Burlisle, what a great, fantastic guy. I know you're working with him. Uh, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. My new good friend, Eddie Trask, who you, who uh, has nothing but high praise yeah, for he, you. He's my, he's my co-host. I, he, he texted me the other night coming home from midnight mass. He said, I saved his life, his family and his life. They were on a night. It was an icy road on the interstate. And, and so he's a Californian. So he hasn't spent much time on the snowy icy roads. Uh-huh. And I just told him, I said, you know, the one thing that most people do is they slam on their brakes when they, when they, when someone else stops ahead or they see something and instead what they need to do is drop it into lower gear yeah. and then apply the brakes gently, you know, help that your transmission will slow you down. He said, all he could think of when he started looking at this mess coming up ahead of him was Pat said, put it lower gear. And he did. And he said, he slowed down really easily without any slipping. Yeah. And then he was able to apply the brakes and he avoided an accident. So well, Pat you know. King, you're always giving out good advice. <laughs> Whether it's wanted or not, <laughs> you, you know when, my daughters. <laughs> you know when when we talked earlier about uh, you coming on this program, you said, "I have to warn you, this show is about an hour long." So you said to you know just get out of your way. You know, is, ask is the question. All, is that all I get? Is an hour? That's it. Well, who knows? You're limiting Pat. me to an hour. I know it's gonna be it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. I don't know how I can. I don't know how I can whittle it down. Well, <laughs> if we have to do a part two, that would be the first. So who so knows? Let me tell you, everyone says I'm a talker, but I'll tell you why that has come to be almost. I've always, I was always a talker in school. I'm the middle child of seven. And I did, I wasn't big size like my older brothers. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I was a little fat and chunky. And I wasn't the baby the young kids. So I didn't get away with a whole lot. So I had to argue my way out of things or talk my way out of things or so I, I became to get fed. I had to be noted. So I talked a lot, but in my, in my later years, I've, I live on a farm by myself. I live, I work by myself. I have my own business. I'm, I don't have 28 employees anymore. I, I work, do all the work myself and I live out in the country life. So I, 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 for for about ninety five percent of my day, I may go two or three days before I even talk to anybody, see another human being, especially wow. this time of year, in the winter time where I'm just working with my cattle and my pigs. So, when I get a chance to relate to somebody, <laughs> I do. Let it rip. <laughs> I do. In fact, I was just having a a picture of a CC frame today at Hobby Lobby, and I ran into a lady. She liked the picture. She liked how I was getting it framed, and we just started talking. Mm-hmm. And I started telling her a little bit about my son and 
and stuff and how how my life has been shaped I, it's been shaped by my whole family my catholic upbringing and stuff if i i don't think if i grew up in a catholic family i'd be where i'm at today uh, uh spiritually uh emotionally because i i think the catholic church does a really good job of teaching about suffering mm-hmm. and and the graces that come from it and how that suffering is just part of life. In fact, it's a very big part of life. Even, even our blessed Lord Jesus Christ's mother, her, she was told from the very onset after he was born that she would suffer greatly. And so knowing that the Lord's own mother would suffer, her heart would be pierced as and that we're taught that, that we understand that as Catholics, that we know that that we're going to share in that same kind of suffering and that Jesus suffered for us mm-hmm. so that we're going to suffer. And when we get a hold of that and we understand that, we look at things as suffering as a way to grow from, not as not as a way to keep us down, uh, keep us away. So, you know, uh, I left the church back in the 80s or mid 80s mm-hmm. because... I grew up in Idaho, very conservative Catholic family, uh, very doctrinal, you know, in the old Latin mass, you know, we had the altar rails. I was an altar boy. So we used the patent and all that. And so, and we grew up with very Baltimore catechism, very rote memorization, which was in a way very good because that stuff stuck with me. But when I, when I moved from Idaho, just for a winter, to go down to Southern California to work. Uh, my dad had a job for me and I worked down there. I was going to be there for the winter because it was a harsh winter up here. Wasn't self-employed. I always got laid off every winter because I was a landscaper. So I had to find work all the time. And I hated that, not having that structured uh, uh, life, that structured uh, work at, you know, work. I'm a worker. You know, I, I like working. I get a lot of satisfaction from working. So I go down and I worked the winter in security down there in, in Southern California and had a house up here and I had two roommates and they were paying all the bills and, and stuff. And then they, they caused a fire in the kitchen and then moved out without telling me and left my house just sitting there in the middle of winter and didn't turn off the water or anything like that could, you know, so I had someone just get, get someone in there to fix it all up and then sell it. And I had my stuff put in storage and I thought, well, I'll give, so it's Palm Springs area is where I was living. Mm-hmm. So not a bad area to live as a single guy, right? So I, I, I had a roommate, and we're still best friends to this day. Uh, I lived down there for about two and a half years. Then I started dating this girl who was Southern Baptist, but she was really cute, you know, Southern mm-hmm. California blonde girl, you know. What, could, what more could you ask for as a single guy? And so I'm... I'm, I'm dating her and I never thought, you know, that I would marry down there, you know, but all of a sudden, you know, you, you know what happens, you fall in love and, and, and I I tried to bring her into the church. She was Southern Baptist. So he goes, I don't really like, you know, Southern Baptists hate Catholics. I mean, they just, they talk about them all the time about how Catholics are going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So I told her, I'm not going to be Southern, Southern Baptist. And she was at least willing to listen to our priest down there at the Newman Center I was going to. Mm-hmm. And we go down and we meet with, and his name was Father Ned, and I think he's no longer a priest. But 
we we start that before this was uh, marriage counseling and RCIA was a thing. He spent two and a half hours with this, mm-hmm. and after that two and a half hours, I thought, "Holy heck, I don't even recognize this church anymore." If that's the way the church is going, you know how some California so goes Cal what California goes so goes the rest of the world, the mm-hmm. rest of the country. And I thought, if this is what's coming, I want no part of it. So I was dumb. I was ignorant. I I just thought the church was changing. And I didn't want to be that liberal, ultra-liberal, ultra-wackadoodle, like harmonic convergence of God and trees and all that stuff. And sure. All this hippie. He was a hippie, and he talked about it. So he took the Vatican II side, liberal side of Vatican II, and went down a path that I just couldn't see part of. So I left. I left the church and my wife and I became, our girlfriend then became wife. We joined a four square, very conservative four square gospel church. And at first it was very weird, you know, all the the, the hour of band worship music and all that. And then the, mm-hmm. the half hour, 45 minutes of preaching on one verse or two, you know, mm-hmm. they just sit up there and go over and over and over and constantly yelling out word. Amen, brothers. Hallelujah. You know, People just shouting up, but that was all the participation there was, you know, yep. in the sermon. And then, of course, the tithing. The, they made a real big deal about tithing. Sure. And, you know, it was all new to me. And so, but it, it was it was a neutral territory for my wife and I. We weren't fighting over what church we were going to. We were in the same church, and that was a good thing. So I thought. So we, my first child was born. Now, she had a stepdaughter that um, couldn't adopt because of California adoption laws involved the grandparents and stuff, and it was very would have been very expensive. And so we didn't didn't go that route, and she didn't want to involve their parent his his her ex husband's family. Did your stay in in California? Did it stay longer than just that summer, or or did you come oh, back? Oh yeah. To- oh no, I I was there from eighty four to ninety five. Oh okay. Got married in eighty. I got married in eighty nine. And uh, we started dating in 87, got married in 89. And we had a non, non-denominational pastor, Marius, in a, in a country club without permission from the bishop. I wasn't going to the church. I, I didn't, you know, I was totally ignorant of all the rules and stuff. But anyway, right. so she, uh, we get married and we have our first kid in 91. Beautiful young girl. But one of the things that, uh, in California, they have you take this test. I thought it was mandatory, but it, it's voluntary. We don't know, didn't know that. And this test came out some low negative or low positive. So can't remember the, what it was, but the counselor from the state came in and suggested that we have an abortion because we didn't want to be a burden to the state because the child was possibly going to be born with Down syndrome, right? Or something mm-hmm. else. And that freaked us out. And I was always pro-life. My wife at the time... Could have gone either way but now she's pregnant and she you know it's like a different story when you're pregnant and you know it's a baby so we go talk to our pastor and we pray together and everything's fine and and we decide to have the baby born perfect i mean nine pounds eight ounces lots of hair all ten toes fingers beautiful face everything mm-hmm. just a gorgeous little kid grew up to be a very talented smart athletic gifted child and yet we could have aborted. So this is the mistake that I knew right away. They would have wanted us to abort this child. And yet look how perfect she was. Mm-hmm. 
as she grew. I mean, can you imagine how many people's lives have been changed because of some prenatal test and they advise them to abort and they do, they do that and it's it's like wow there's there is no there's no problem with them doing that there's no recourse yeah. and they have no no remorse for anything they do well, science doesn't so know sad. everything no it doesn't that's why they call it a practice doctors still practice medicine yeah. it's not a perfect everything is rote memory it's all done so you know that was our first when i when i was talking with eddie we we both agreed that and I know where you're going with this because I know your story a, a bit. The things that you have been through in your life and still have the sense of humor that you have is amazing. So please continue. Well, God's got a great, God's got a great sense of humor. And you know why I know this? Well, one, he made giraffes. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do you need a giraffe for? You know? <laughs> and, and then he, he made us. And, and every time I look in the mirror, I go, Geez, God, you've got one heck of a sense of humor. Because look at me. Yeah. You made me, you know? And so if God's got a sense of humor, I got to have one, you know? Yeah. And it, it you, you go, you know, why why look like you've been weaned on a pickle all your life, you know? Uh, that sour <laughs> look, that 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 face that's just down in the dumps, that's mm-hmm. just no way to live. And and I have my moments, you know, I, I get sad and I get depressed from time to time. Not Not very often. It's very rare. Um, but you know, I was born with a smile on my face. You know, I was happy to be born. They were feeding me steaks at two days old. (laughs) So anyway, so my first daughter was born and then we get pregnant with our second child. And this is, uh, I mean, almost right away. And the ultrasound, we didn't take that prenatal test. We were just not, we were not going to participate in their, their scheme. And if they, if we had, my son's blood results, my test would have shown he definitely was going to have a pro- lot of problems. Yeah. And even the ultrasound showed some ideas that things weren't, didn't look as good. Okay. But, you know, we, we just believed that God was going to give us what God was going to give us and that he would make sure that everything would, would work out for the right reasons. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now remember, I'm not a practicing Catholic. I'm going to a four square church. I'm not, I, I, I'm still, I still love my faith. I never denounce, I never go, oh, I hate the Catholic Church. No, it was never that. It was the Catholic Church was changing and I didn't like the changes. So I, I thought, so I thought. So I, uh, we, we, this child is born and we're in the, we're in the, now we're in a room that's uh, for distressed births. And they knew that Lance was under some kind of distress in the womb. So we're near, real close, like we're just, just a door down from the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And uh, we, the doctor, kid, kid comes out, Lance comes out, doctor shows all the anomalies on his, the, the bald spot in his head, the a- asymmetrical face, his lower eardrums, his club feet, all the little problems Lance had going on. They showed us, they held him up for 15 seconds and whew, out the door. We didn't get to touch him, hold him, we just got a glance. They just and they pointed out all those things so that they, we knew what was happening right from the birth canal and going in that nothing they can be blamed for not. They're covering their butt, yeah. okay. And so they take him in, and we aren't even allowed to see him for like two, three hours. 
and they had to put all sorts of tubes in him and breathing stuff and, and all the wires on him to check his heart rate, his blood oxygen. Oh, man, it was just, he was, and in an incubator because he was not doing well with the oxygen levels. So after about two and a half, three hours, we got to come in and look at him. We couldn't even touch him. We got to look at him in this big incubator with all this stuff, and and we were helpless. And mm-hmm. you, if you think about something like that, what's going through your mind, this total distress of, uh, it's our child, what the heck is going on? You're just at a loss. You're, you're scared. You're terrified. You don't know what to say. You don't even know how to be angry. It's just, you're just so numb about what's happening that you don't even know how to ask questions. Just like, okay, what do we do now? You know? Mm-hmm. And it took us, I think, I think we didn't even get the holder for like two days. Wow. You know, after that, they had to make sure he was stabilized and everything. Do salt, all sorts of tests. Finally, Linda got to go in and hold him and rock him. And, and for, he was in there for about three weeks, but, they still didn't catch all the things that were going on. And we didn't know. You don't know what questions to ask. You you're, you have a kid that's born. You take them home the next day. You feed them. You change their diaper. And it's like like a normal thing. How old were you at this time? I was 92. It was a, it was, he was born in October of 92. He stayed in through the, about the middle of November. And so I was 92. I, I was 30, 31 years old. Still relatively relatively a young man yeah you know that never had issues dealt with i mean i've got lots of nephews and cousins all born healthy Mm -hmm. you know you just you just don't know what to expect when this happens to you Mm -hmm. okay and so you you don't even know how to respond you're not thinking of it you know You, you don't think so you you just are reacting as it happens so we, he was in there for about three day, three weeks, and they were gavage feeding him through a tube in his nose and doing all this stuff. And then finally they said, well, he's starting to grow a little, starting to do better. We're just going to send you home with them. And unbeknownst to us, he had a huge hole in his heart this whole time. And they didn't catch it at a, at a NICU, uh, and they didn't catch it. And he struggled for a while, okay? We had a specialized nurse that came to the house to help us out. My wife had the insurance, so she had to go back to work. And all this time, we're thinking he's a normal baby that just is struggling a little bit. That's all we knew with some some handicaps and some facial features that are just, we didn't know anything about his hearing or anything like that. We didn't know anything about his, um, uh, uh, anything other than we knew that he was struggling to eat through, uh, he couldn't latch on to a nipple. He couldn't latch on to my, my wife's breast. And he had a hard time, even with the Playtex nurses we were given, mm-hmm. he had a hard time sucking. And it took him like five, six hours to get an eight-ounce bottle of, of formula in him. Wow. And, and then when he'd get it in him, he'd throw it back up. So we were just at a loss. I mean, we're, we're and she, my, my wife was very patient with him. I'm working. She's working. We have a we have a nurse helping us out and we're just trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know he was deaf and we didn't know he was mentally retarded. We didn't know hardly anything about him. Mm-hmm. Really his medical condition. 
So we're just going around like normal. We went to a daycare for a while because the nurse turned out to be someone that was very mean to our older daughter. Uh, even spanked her a couple of times. It was really rough on her to the point my dog alerted me to the care she was giving to my other daughter, my older daughter. So that was alarming. So we take him to a daycare near my wife. She was a school teacher. So near her school, uh, there was a daycare. And this kid was having seizures and all sorts of problems. And this guy, this gal calls up and says, I cannot, I'm not equipped to handle a child with these kind of needs. Mm-hmm. So my mom was a nurse and I called her and said, mom, what do we do? Now we're getting very close to Christmas. And I go, mom, what do I do? She says, we, we, the insurance company keeps sending us all these other different directions, but not really looking at the very, like, like a, a DNA test, a genetics test. Uh, and other things that really were so low on the list of things that need to be done. And we're running around doing those. And yet the primary thing, he's not thriving. He's not eating. He's not, he's not doing anything. And my mom said, just take him to the emergency room. They have to admit him. Mm -hmm. So now he's almost, I mean, he's almost on death's door and not doing well. We take him to the emergency room. Now he was retaining fluids. That's your set. He's, he was, oversaturated his fluids. He wasn't peeing properly. He wasn't urinating out the extra fluids. Yep. So they, uh, they put him on diuretics to dry him out a little bit over Christmas, his first Christmas in 92, and then send him home to us. And then we have an appointment to go see a cardiac, a pediatric cardiologist in, in LA at St. Vincent's hospital in LA. Now this is right after the uh, riots in downtown LA. Okay, the Rodney King riots yep. right after that. So we go for this appointment right at as like on the 27th of December. We go to these uh, this doctor's appointment. Now, we're just going in for a checkup. We live two and a half hours from Palm Springs, two and a half hours from L.A. We go to L.A., we go to this doctor's appointment, and Lance was a squirmer, so he had to be sedated so he'd get the ultrasound on him to check his heart out. And I'm, I'll never forget this doctor. It's funny how you never remember, never forget things, certain things. Mm-hmm. His name is Dr. Guillermo Young. And we're talking, everything's fine. He's just going to do a little check on his heart, see where he's at. And finally, Lance gets settled down. He's doing the ultrasound. And Dr. Young is talking to us this whole time, just saying, yeah, okay, this is that, okay. And all of a sudden, he gets dead quiet. He picks up the phone. Calls down. I don't hear what he's saying. Hangs up the phone. He says, I need you to come see something. So he shows me this huge hole in my son's heart. And one of the eight chambers uh, oh. is not sealed up. There's a flap. It looked like a flag waving in the ultrasound. And he goes, I've called for an emergency uh, open heart surgery to be done on him tomorrow morning. So we're here from two and a half hour trip. Our other kids are being watched by his, uh, my wife's uh, family. And now we have to stay overnight to my son's heart surgery. Now, I do have a cousin that lived in L.A. And uh, one of the funny things about it was after that riot, we were driving through town, and it was late at night, and these two cops pull us over and tell us where we're going, what we're doing, because we're a couple white guys, white people in a bad neighborhood of L.A. Right. And he said, they tell us, don't stop at a stoplight or stop sign. Slow down, look both ways, and, and go through it. Don't stop. We don't want you to get carjacked or or because they would 
they'd back hit you and bump into you and then you'd get out and then they'd take your car, right? So they just told us to keep going through stop sites and no cop will ever stop you if you if you're looking to slow down and you just keep moving. If you get if you get hit, just keep going. Don't don't even stop. So that's because I had to drive all the way through that part of town to get to my cousin's house. So we go there. Now my son weighed nine pounds at this point. The surgery is the very next day. We pick him up, take him home three days later, and he lost three and a half pounds of weight wow. in one in just a couple of days. So he's back down to six pounds. Okay. All of that was fluid that had been retaining on his body. His organs were saturated with fluid because they weren't processing through the heart properly. So now he's got this zipper in his chest because it cracked open his chest to do an open heart surgery. It was successful. He did fine. But we were told early on that Lance probably wouldn't even survive his very first year of, of life because of all the complications he had. So, you know, that's not a very good, you know, no. way to look at a future of your kid. So every time I went to the hospital, it was like, oh, he's probably not coming home this time. You know, kind of uh, disheartening, say the least. Oh, so I can't even imagine. He has this, my, we have this heart surgery, take him home. You got to be very, he's two and a half months old at this time. Yep. And you can't even huddle, cuddle him and hold him like you have to be very gentle because his chest has been ripped open. He's got all these stitches on his chest. You can't bathe him. You can't do anything hardly at all. He's uncomfortable. He's crying all the time. He's sad. We're giving him some medication to, you know, for the pain, but you know, you can't give a kid too much or cause another problem, sure. which did happen later on. So, you know, we, uh, we're at a loss. We don't know what to do. So we're doing the best we can. We're all trying to figure this out as we go. So he, he has club foot surgery, uh, a year later, his health has gotten better. He started doing better. Uh, so we have club foot surgery to correct his club feet. And at, at a year, he's now a year and two and a half months when we have the surgery. Again, another Christmas. Mm -hmm. Okay. He goes in for a surgery on one day, supposed to be in there for a day or two, and then he'll come home, right? Well, this is where I really struggled with God. I This whole time when Lance was born, I kept thinking God was punishing me for my earlier behavior in my life. I, I, I thought of King David as him having an affair. And I didn't have an affair, but he had an affair with Bathsheba. I was, I was having premarital sex. I was, I was not a good Catholic young man. I was not a good Catholic gentleman. Mm -hmm. I did everything wrong against what I was taught. Okay. So I thought just like David was punished for his, his, uh, having an affair with Bathsheba and then having a kid, I thought I was being punished that, that God was going to burden me with this child and ruin my life. When, when, remember what, I mean, I told you when he was, we were pregnant with a boy and I knew it was a boy. I had him playing third base wearing number five for the Dodgers. You know, I was already getting it. I mean, I was working on getting him all the proper training. He was going to, he was going to be my baseball player that I never made it. Mm -hmm. He was going to be that guy for me, that kid. So when he was born with all these problems and now he's a nobody, he's a, he's a burden. That's I, I gotta be honest. That's how I viewed it. He was going to be a burden to my life. Wow. He was taking away 
my future, my my namesake, my son is never going to get married. You have my name, have grandkids in my name, mm-hmm. take my name and move it forward. I, it's the end of the line for me. That I mean, come on. I mean, that's how, how I was thinking. Sure. It was it was wrong, but it was how I was thinking. I was sad. I was I was cursing at God. God, why why me? Why are you punishing me? You know, or if it is because because of, don't do it to him. Don't punish him. Take it out on me. I'm a man. I can handle it. But don't punish my son. You know, I I, I was kind of negotiating with God, right? You know, yep. and and this went on for about a year and a half. Now, during this time, we find out he's he's deaf, mentally retarded, probably won't have. We were told he would never come to sit on his own. He'd never crawl on his own. He'd never roll over on his own. He would always be in, strapped to a chair or, or harness or something. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we, we didn't have a bright future for him. There was not a bright outlook for his life. And I'm going, I'll be honest. I'm saying, crap, I'm stuck with this kid. And God, do take hurt me. Don't don't hurt my son. Hurt me. Now, I'm already blind in the right eye from playing rugby. This is before I even got married. I got poked in the eye playing rugby and I've had twenty one eye surgeries. I've been I've been punished a lot, but you know, that was my own doing. I mean, come on now. God didn't go hey, poke me in the eye, you know. Mm-hmm. He it it happened because of my actions and my what I did. But don't my this is my son. Don't don't take him. Don't hurt him hurt me, you know? So I, I was negotiating. I was trying to, you know, work with God and say, you know, but I was still mad at God. Okay? I, I, was, I think that's gotta be a common feeling though. I mean, no, no father wants to see their, their children struggle like that. Yeah, it, it is. It really is. And, and, uh, unless you're a selfish SOB and then you don't care. But mm-hmm. I, I, but I was, I was concerned that I, that he was going to be born a burden to me and, and everything. So, we go to this club foot surgery. Now, don't get me wrong. I loved my son. I mean, I was a good, dutiful father. I did everything for his care. I mm-hmm. made sure that he got to the right doctors. I asked questions. I, I did everything I could to keep him healthy. I sang to him. I, I held him. I, I loved my son. Don't, but I still looked at him as a burden. One way or another, he was a burden. Do you think your Catholic upbringing helped to see the dignity in your son's? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I've always been pro-life. Mm-hmm. And so little early, little offside story, but when I was in the third grade, we moved from Texas to, to Whittier, California. And they had uh, an elementary school. They had it in one, two, three grades, and then another school, four, five, and six, but just on the other side, like the, the grounds, okay? Mm-hmm. But behind a chain link fence was another school for all the special needs kids, okay? Handicap, Down syndrome, all that was yeah. in this other, but they were right, very much adjacent. You could see the kids. And now I grew up with a large family and special kids were not a bad thing to me. It wasn't like, uh, you know, it was like, oh, that's a bad, that's a handicapped kid, go pick on. You know, it was like, no, you take care, you care for them. Sure. So mom being a nurse and all that. Mm -hmm. So one day coming out of school, now I'm a new kid. 
Okay, I'm just from Cal, just from Texas to California, and these third graders, these other classmates of mine, are calling these kids over there mental retard and you know stupid and stuff like that, and, and being mean to them. And all these kids are just smiling, trying to be friends. They're, you know, we got a chain link fence in between, so they, they couldn't hurt them, but they were they were throwing slurs at them and being mean. And 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 I, for some reason, I said, stop it. You know, there there's nothing wrong with them. Stop being like that. Stop being a bully. And I, third grader, and I'm new, mm -hmm. and I don't know why I did it, but that's always kind of been who I was. Always trying to be that protector of others. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, I, I've always believed in the human dignity of of other lives, other children and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, that's why I say the Catholic Church has taught me everything about suffering and graces and, and stuff like that. And that's why everybody would benefit by being Catholic. I mean, be honest with you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so my son now is is in this club foot surgery and. It's I stay at his bedside because I at, at that point have cut back on my landscaping business to the point where I could do what I do on the weekend when my wife's home I could go out and work and I also had an overnight job as a doing putting out the newspaper I did the put all the inserts in the the all the advertisers in the paper I put those in mm -hmm. so she she had the insurance so she worked during the day and I was home with the kids so all day long I'd be up with the kids I'd take a nap when they did. And uh, now I got a, I got a two-year-old in Lance, two and a half-year-old Lance, who's a year and a half, and, you know, then a, an older, uh, I think she was twelve or thirteen, going to school, so she'd come home and I'd be there, right? And when she'd come home and they, I'd take a nap, uh, when my wife got home until I went to work at nine o'clock at night, I put the paper out overnight. Mm -hmm. So I worked whatever I could to to help support the family and be there for my son. And uh, I'd mow lawns on the weekends to do sprinkler repairs, stuff like that. So when he went into the hospital, I go in there and I say, okay, I'll stay with him for a couple of days. Took a couple of days off of work at my night job. And I stay with him at his bedside after the surgery. And they screwed up. Uh, they gave him too much morphine, which suppressed his breathing. And it, it caused him to almost suffocate from his own... Uh, uh, snot okay mm -hmm. mucus and uh i went take a shower now this is a adventist teaching hospital seventh day adventist teaching hospital so i go down i take a shower because i've been there for a couple days and i go to get something to eat and as i come back to the room my son's almost dead he's blue and not he can't cry out they put him in a room with like 12 other kids shouting screaming tvs blaring no one at this bedside checking on i get back to the bedroom the room just in time to find out he's almost dead. And I have to call a nurse in, they pull a huge mucus plug out of him, they get him breathing, and then they decide they need to put him in a, a PICU, which is a pediatric intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. And while he's there, he starts retaining a lot of fluid. It's called ascites, where fluid builds up on your abdomen and nothing's, nothing's working right at all. So a two-day hospital stay surgery turns into a 37-day stay my god and i stay at his bedside monday through friday uh through saturday morning my wife comes out after school stays with him from saturday night to sunday morning i go mow lawns 
I go get a night, good night's sleep, and I come back Sunday afternoon, send her back home. And we, the, the two ships passing in the dark, we do kiss each other, and she goes back to the kids and, and take care of that. And then I have family come down from Utah and Idaho that helped out quite a bit while I was gone. Mm-hmm. So I'm at my son's bedside 24 hours a day, six and a half days a week. And he's only sleeping an hour or two at a time. Mm-hmm. So that's when I take my nap. I, I, I'm basically up. Now, Asides, he gained 30 pounds, and 20, 23 of them were, or 20 of them were, were liquid, fluid, on his belly. He couldn't even lay on his belly. He had to lay on his back the whole time with a beach ball. Imagine a beach ball full of water on your chest. Mm. He was uncomfortable all the time. I'd have to pat him on the back, soothe him, talk to him. And he's deaf, so he can hear my voice a little bit because I've got a deeper voice. And he's he's crying all the time, uncomfortable. And I wasn't even, it's Seventh-day Adventist, so it's all that fake protein food, awful. <laughs> so I don't eat all day long. Every night they were going to do tests on him, so they would sedate him, and then they'd be with him for the two and a half hours. And I'd go down to TGI Fridays down the street and get get a decent meal to eat. Yep. And I come back in time to be back in his room, and then I stay up with him all night. And every couple hours, the nurse would come in to check his vitals. Mm-hmm. He'd open the door, turn on the lights, wake me up, wake him up. He'd start crying. She'd get his vitals and leave. After about three nights of that, I yell at her. I said, "If you come in this room and he's asleep, leave." And, or you could spend the next two and a half hours patting his back to help him go back to sleep. Right. Because I was already cranky. I They didn't have a bed. I'm sleeping in a chair this whole time. A chair, arm, wooden arm chair this whole time. Now, in my book, I'm writing a book called Born a Burden, Became a Blessing. And in it, I talk about this very scenario. And one of the things I, I never really quite understood, because, again, I'm angry at God. So I'm not really talking to God. I'm going, if someone was to ask me today, if I could spend 24 hours at someone's bedside, seven days a week, getting an hour of, of sleep every couple hours, three, four hours, could you do it? And you, the normal person, normal person would say, no. hell no. <laughs> there is no way I could do that. Why are you asking me to do that? But yet somehow, that whole time, those 30, I was there 34 out of 37 days, 24 hours a day at his bedside. Yeah. Somehow, I made it through. Somehow, I had the strength to get three hours sleep broken up over 24 hours, maybe a little more. I got some sleep. I mean, I know, I know, I know you're angry at God right now, but I mean, are you praying to him for strength? No, no. I, I'm asking him to fix my son. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm asking him to help my son heal. I'm not, I'm not praying to him. No, shoot, no. I was, I was not in communication with God, other than help my son. Mm-hmm. I was demanding God help my son. It wasn't, oh please, Lord. It wasn't on my knees. I wasn't praying. I, I was watching TV. I was trying, I, just trying to catch whatever sleep I could. So, I was so these not, are some angry words with God, then, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I hate you or I don't believe in you. It was why, why, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. 
So I, but as I'm writing this book, this is almost 20 some odd years later after this incident, he's been dead 18 years now. And, and, and I'm, I'm writing this book and I'm sitting there going, Oh my gosh, even though I wasn't talking to God, even though I wasn't looking to God for guidance and help and support, there is no way I could have physically survived 34 days at my son's bedside without God propping me up. Now, this is a realization after his death, after I returned to the faith, after I started this whole prayer life thing, this, mm-hmm. this whole engagement, and I'm starting to write this book, and it's like, oh my gosh, God never left my side. Even though I was basically cursing at him, mm-hmm. he still was there. Because, come on, how do you? How does someone, I'm, yes, okay, I'm 32, 33, yeah. but how do you physically stay up that long, get that little sleep, eat one meal a day and, and deal with the, the threat of your son dying before your eyes. I mean, that's, that, that's just, that's not superhuman. It's super spiritual, super godly. Yeah. Because when I, after he went home with us, I went back to normal life. It wasn't like I was dead to the world for the next three or four weeks. I went to sleep one night, woke up, went to work the next day. I mean, it was like I didn't miss a beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, granted, I was younger, but there's no way I could. No one, no one, just no one can do that. It's just not physically possible. Uh, just you would be so worn out. You'd be you'd be out to the world for days. God was that spiritual food, that spiritual strength, that that propping up, the holding up my arms, the keeping my eyelids open. Mm-hmm. He did all that for me, even though I was telling him to go away. So, so that's a great, now I'm still not talking to God. I still haven't accepted my son mm-hmm. as a great gift yet. So this is, uh, he's probably a year and a half, almost two years. So we're about six months away from the club foot surgery. Mm-hmm. And he's still got casts on, I believe. And things are going okay. You know, we're, we're learning how to take care of him. That, that's, that was a whole process, learning how to, to, to meet his needs how to read what he's wanting yeah. because he couldn't communicate. He couldn't say I'm hungry or anything like that. He just did what he did and we had to figure it out. So we were, we do know he's deaf at this point and we're taking him to classes, sign language classes so that because they do this with young kids, teach them how to communicate with using sign language. Well, Lance has got a mental capacity of about a nine to 18 month old child. He's mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. And he's very behind the, the mental growth curve. But we're working with him. We're going to these classes. And I don't see a whole, I mean, I see other kids progressing. I don't see Lance doing a whole lot. But Linda's very, my wife at the time, is very patient with him and working with him. I tried working with him, but I'm still frustrated. I'm still going, God, I don't understand this burden. I don't, why me? And I go out in the parking lot. Now, it's I swear, you know, people say God doesn't talk yet. You just have to shut up and listen when you ask God a specific question. But I go out in this parking lot, I'm taking a break. I just need some air. And I'm sitting out in this parking lot and I'm on a hill kind of looking over. I go, God, what? what just please tell me what you want me to do. Why are you doing this? Just can you fix him? Can you, and, and why did you give me this burden? And I can't recall the voice 
but it sounded it's like I was having a it's like burden. You you don't understand something. Now this is God telling me. You don't understand something. I don't give burdens to people. I give gifts. And I gave this kid to you, this child, to you because he needed someone to love him and take care of him. Because if we don't have, when you think about it, if we don't have these type of children in our lives, mm -hmm. medical science will not progress. People won't learn how to love the unlovable. People won't learn how to take care of those that are truly needy, truly need care and provided for. Mm -hmm. For, I mean, you know, you have a kid, you, you they start walking, they start getting mouthy, they start going to school. Next thing you know, they're getting married and leaving your house. And it's like, what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the normal process of a kid. But when you have a kid that's going to need you for their entire life to do everything for them. Yeah. God only gives those to people that can handle it. it. It's a gift. It's it's not a. So it was like someone turned on the switch. The light came on. It was bright. And it was like God was telling me that because of my heart, I was capable of such a great love. But. God also knew I needed someone to love me just as much. Mm -hmm. My father did not teach, did not, my father was not a loving man. I don't think I've ever hugged my father past the age of nine years of age. Okay. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen my dad. This is, oh, I, my son had died. Uh, I hadn't seen my dad for quite a while. And he was living in Northern California at this point with his wife. And I was coming to California for a tour of grape vineyards because I was going to put one up at my place and I wanted to see how they did it, see how to lay it out, how to organize it, what kind of equipment they used. So I, I had an 80-acre farm and I was going to put grape vineyards on my farm. And so I do a tour of Southern California, Fresno area, and I meet some people and stuff like that. But on my way there, I stop and see my dad and in Grass Valley. And I did, I was kind of a wanderer. I like looking at landscapes and beauty and stuff like that. So I took a longer route and he expected me a certain time and he's all panicking that I'm not there on time and all that. And I thought, oh, when I show up, he's going to give me this big hug and welcome. And all he did was I show up, I walk to the door, he comes out, he's angry at me for being late and making him worry, and then he shakes my hand. <laughs> that was it. So my dad was not a big lover. Mm -hmm. and didn't teach his kids to love. And that was tough. I, I didn't realize how important a man showing affection to his own children is until my own child showed me that great affectionate love for my own son. Wow. Okay? It's beautiful. And I loved my kids. I hugged my kids all the time. I sang to them. I rocked them. I loved being a dad. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I never knew what a great love was until my son was born. And he would just love, I mean, just hug you. I mean, squeeze, he's got these long skinny arms and he would just wrap his arms around his neck and never let go. He'd just squeeze and hug mm -hmm. and just cooing and kind big wide open mouth kisses, you know, just, just, 
giddy and cooing and cawing, just, just, he's like, oh, I just want to love on you. Hey, where you been all my life? You know, just come here, you big guy. And I want to <laughs> hug you. I mean, it was, it was incredible. So when I tell you, God gave me this gift because I would take care of him, but he also knew he would take care of me. He would help heal my heart and teach me how to love. I did an episode with Eddie Trask on his Catholic recon. And I, and it, the title, the subtitle of the title of the episode was how a son taught his father how to love. Mm. And because I was, I can hug people. I can hug a band. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a band. I can handle that. But it wasn't like when another man says, I love you, brother. Oh yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. good, good for you. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, yeah, man, I love you too, brother. It was weird. And now I say it all the time. Yeah. No, there's different ways <laughs> because, that guys, you know, there's different ways to oh, love. Sure. You know? Well, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, I was with, we, you and I met at uh, the, the thing in New Haven for the Knights of Columbus. I was with one of my, one of my best friends there, Dave Imhoff, who was, yeah. and I, and I love the guy, but I don't, you know, I, I love him appropriately. I love him, you know, like well, a brother, like a brother, yeah. you know, not, I don't love him like my wife. But so, so that's really what you're saying is about your son is there's that, just that, that connection that between the hearts, I think it was, you know, it's, yeah. Just, yeah, I yeah. just, this story is beautiful. It's so sad, but it's, you know, there's, there's beauty in it. Well, you know, at the, at the training we went to in October, when they said core, mm -hmm. I can't remember the other word, but core to core, heart to heart. Yeah. When I saw that, when I read that and yeah. they explained it. I immediately thought of my son. Sure. Uh, we were heart we were heart to heart. My son had a way of connecting heart to heart. In fact, I this happened a lot. My son loved everybody. This is where I tell people I had a little piece of heaven because I got to see how how loving, even though he couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't do things, couldn't engage in conversation, he would he would love on everybody. But I would, and this happened quite a few times. So I'd be holding my son after church. I'm, I'm still going to a four square church at this time. And total stranger to my son would come up. Now I may know him from church or just someone engaging in conversation. And my son would look at him. And I'm holding him. He's hanging on to me. He'd see this stranger and immediately reach his arm out to grab their neck and then pull himself like a monkey or a, or a sloth, pull him to him. And, and then leave me, just totally hmm. leave me and go to this guy. He doesn't know him. Yep. And what he would do is he'd, he'd take their face, put his hands right behind their jawline, pull their face into his face, put his nose on their nose, and then look you dead in the eye and stare at you mm. with a big smile, with a big smile on his face. Mm -hmm. and, you're, and, they're, and they're freaking out. What do I do? What do I do? And what's he doing? I said, well... He's studying your soul. He wants to know you on a spiritual level. He wants to get to know who you are because he loves everybody. And then, well, what do I do next? He says, well, when he's ready, he'll let go. And he'll just fall down. He'll just flop backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but it was, he would do that to everybody. Mm -hmm. He had, it, it did, you could have been a mass murderer and he would have loved on you like that. And, and to witness that firsthand, to see someone not afraid, some 
child, so so not afraid to just love on people. No, it, it it's that point where I don't know if he saw Jesus' face in every person, but I'll tell you what, he loved him like he did. Hmm. And like I said, you could have had a bad day, yell at your wife, been a mass murderer, and it didn't matter to him. He didn't care who you were. He cared who you were, who the person was. Sure. And he wanted to love on that person. And it was it was just so it was such a great gift to witness that firsthand. That there is that unconditional, innocent love that you can't ever experience. So this is my awakening. All of a sudden, I believe that God gave me this gift, this blessing. So my title of my book that I'm working on is Born a Burden Became a Blessing. And it was just like that. At about year year and three quarters, almost two years old, I have this epiphany, this enlightening of, of my understanding of, of why Lance is Lance mm -hmm. and why he is to me. And it totally changed how I looked at my son, how I treated my son. I wasn't afraid to, to just do things with him, just be there for him and just enjoy every little thing he did. I mean, eventually he learned to crawl on his own. Eventually learned to, he, he did a bear crawl. He couldn't get on his hands and knees, just crawl like a kid, like a baby does. Mm -hmm. He would do the bear crawl scoop, but he was fast. He was so fast at it. It was, it was like watching a serpent on the ground, just <laughs> sweeping. Uh, I got to tell this story. So we're going to a non-denominational Christian church now. It's now, it's no longer the four square. It's just something a little convenient, a little bigger for the kids. Mm -hmm. And we take him to Dake. I mean, I don't understand why non-denominational churches do this, but all the kids go to daycare and the adults go in the big room. And I love the Catholic church for all the kids being in the pews, being there, present, mm -hmm. to share everything that the adults share in. And whether they're loud or crying or screaming out, if the if the if there's no crying in the pews, the church is dying. You know, as, as uh, Father Larry Richard says, yeah. you got to have kids in the pew. They got to see mom and dad praying. That is so important. Absolutely. So but anyway, we, we would drop our kids son off, and Lance, being the size he was, remember. At this point, he's two and a half years old, but he only weighs uh, 24 pounds and is probably about the length and size of a, of a 19-month-old child. Not very big, not very tall. Wow. So they put him in the infant care room, still in diapers. And, and so we, and there's more babysitters or aides in the room. So they would watch out for lamps. So one day, Church is over, church service. We're going to pick up our kids. And, and Lance is on his back. And I got to witness this firsthand. It was it was great. The only time I saw my son ever get angry, hmm. but it wasn't a revengeful way. It was just a emotional uh, way. But he's laying on his back. And if you know anything about deaf kids, especially toddler infants, they, they like self-stimulation. They like to bang their head. They like to feel vibration. So he had a lot of rattles that made noise and, and made clanging feel sounds. And mm -hmm. he bounced them on his head a lot to feel that vibration, that sense of, of alive, you know? Yeah. So he's sitting there playing with his rattle. He's twirling it overhead. He's got a bottle of Pediasure in the other hand, dripping it all over his face and having a good, cause he loved it. I don't know. Weird kid. <laughs> so 
he's playing with this rattle, and this little girl, I don't know, two years old maybe, scoots up to him and grabs the rattle out of his hand, takes it, and goes back to her little area and is playing with it because she wanted his toy, right? Now, Lance didn't start crying and bawling or anything like that. He had a look of determination on him. He lays his bottle down. He rolls over. He finds his rattle, the little girl with the rattle. He gets on his serpent-like crawl with a scoot and, and makes a beeline to that little girl. Now, he's very strong because he's been playing with rattles his entire life. So he's, he's very strong in the hands. He's got a good grip. He sees his rattle. He gets up on a little bit of his knees, reaches up and grabs that rattle out of that, rips it out of her hand, just rips it out of her hand. Rolls back on his back, smiling, happy, giddy, going back to play. Little kid's bawling. Little girl's just bawling her eyes out. But Lance got his rattle back. <laughs> and it, was, it was the only time I'd ever see him with that that determination to get back what was his. Right, like, righteous anger? Angry. Little righteous anger in his face? Righteous anger. <laughs> like, how dare you take my toy? I'm going back for it. So him growing up now, he's still in and out of hospitals. We find out he has some internal bleeding problems. That was a real scary time for us. He, he was bleeding in his esophagus from his surgeries, but his liver was backing up and it was causing pressure on the veins in his esophagus and they're easy to rupture because they're on the surface. So one night I'm working out when we're, we moved from Southern California to Idaho in uh, 95. So he's three, a little over three years old. And we have our last kid born in Southern California, my last daughter. And at nine days old, we get the all clear to go. She's healthy. And we, we hightail it out of Southern California. I need to come back where fam where I want to raise my kids in a good environment in Idaho, but I also had a lot of family that would be helpful nearby. So it was good to move up here because he was in it, still in and out of hospitals a lot. So, we come up here and, and uh, Lance is, uh, you know, he does better in the cooler weather because he didn't like the heat down there. Yeah. And uh, we come up here and he ends up in a hospital for 75 days in a PICU. I'm working two 45 hour week jobs. I'm sleeping. I have three hours between jobs from one job to the next. Uh, one job got off at five and I had to start the other one at nine. And I had I get some sleep, I get something to eat, and I go to work overnight uh, at a Target store. And I get off at six o'clock in the morning, go home and go to bed for a couple hours. I had to be at work at eight thirty. So I do this for like six months because we determined that my wife should stay home with the kids. We've got three little ones and a handicapped child, so the four kids, but three of them are under the age of five. So she stays home and takes care of them, and I do the job of of earning the living and I'm working all the time. Well, he goes into PICU and it's like, Oh my gosh, how do I do this? So mm -hmm. unfortunately one job had to go. And uh, so I could be at home while she was at the hospital or vice versa. And he's there for 75 days. And we learned a lot about his care. We also learned about a lot about how we are better, how we could be a better advocate for our son's care. So we knew him better. So we would tell the nurses how to take care of him mm -hmm. because it wasn't like we were being bossy, but this is what his habits are. Please don't mess with those habits. 
you'll be as normal as possible if you let them do these things. So once you start learning how to take care of a handicapped child, you need to be a very good advocate for what you know about that child. Because other people just know of kids as normal, normal growth, behavior pattern. Handicapped children have all their own just different behaviors. So, mm. so we go to this hospital now. My oldest daughter, Katie, she's uh, very loving to Lance. I mean, just like a second mom to him. I mean, she was my daddy. His diaper, he's stinky. Needs his <laughs> diaper change. You know? uh, dad, it, so Lance, we couldn't trust him with food. He'd gag on it. So, but Lance loves sweets like ice cream and suckers and stuff. So Katie would hold the sucker, hold the stick, and put the sucker in his mouth and not let him bite it, not let him pull it in, but just keep twirling it on his tongue and then pull it out from time to time so he wouldn't bite on it and gag. Mm-hmm. And she did that whenever I went to doctor's appointments with her and, the, and Lance, the L.A., all of our appointments were in L.A. So she was a very good sister to him, loved him so much. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And... She was good with other handicapped children, mentally retarded kids, other special needs kids. She'd go up and talk to them like, like nobody's business. And, and the moms would go, wow, she's so good with them. Well, well, how come? Well, they got a brother just like him, and to them, they're just normal kids. Mm-hmm. It's just normal. So they had no problem relating to them. So Katie, on the other hand, she she was so concerned about his life. She was deeply devoted to taking care of her little brother and helping out in all the all the ways possible. And there was a very close bond, and it was it was an amazing relationship to see develop. Um, because most kids are selfish towards their siblings. I -hmm. want that. She would go, oh, Lance might like this. You know, Mm -hmm. she was that way. And she's still a great kid to this day. So now we're in Idaho. Things are getting a little bit better. He's still going in and out, but doctors have got a good handle on his care. And we're always doing, we're, we're not being reactive. We're proactive now. We're, we're, we're coming in for regular checkups. We're, we're looking at the things that might go bad and taking care of them on a regular basis so that we don't have these major hospital stays. Mm-hmm. And life is still different but we tried to make it as normal as possible for all the kids you know i would um what i would do is every time i'd come home from work i'd call ahead and say hey i'm on my way home do you need something from the store or do you want me to just come and take the kids and you go to the store i'd always try to find out from my wife what she needed because she's there with them all day and you know she might be just like i gotta get out of here you know yeah so I just call and see what she needed to be as much help as I could. The other thing I would do is I'd come, when I came home, I, I put all my, I own my own business. I've got a landscape business at this time. And I have a separate office because my kids kind of messed up my desk every time, <laughs> as kids do. And, and so I got, a, I got a separate office outside. And I live on two acres at this point. And I had an office built and I have my stuff out there. But I'd come home park my car, get my office, go to my office, put all my stuff in there, come right into the house and do whatever my wife needed me to do. I'd take the kids. I'd, I'd love on the kids. I'd, I'd feed them. I'd change whatever they needed to be done. I was dad at home for that time being. And a lot of times she would decide I got to go grocery shopping. 
and I'd take the kids and I'd feed them, I'd bathe them, I'd do whatever she wanted, she had on the list to do. And I loved that time with my kids. Where did that you know, sense I, come? Where did that sense of duty as a father come from, though? Because you, you said that you didn't really have that that great of a relationship with your dad. Was I did, but I did have. So I did have. Now you sent an an email out or a message out about this, um, uh, how certain things have had an effect on your life, yeah. the significant moments in your life that helped you. Yeah, I've got several of them. One of them was that was. One of my uncles, my mom's brother, the only brother she had, she's one of seven kids. But my uncle was a very loving, do uh, devoted father and husband, and I saw his life, okay? We were close. We lived close. When we were growing up in Twin Falls, Idaho, in, in the 70s and 80s, we were a couple miles apart. And instead of mom saying, well, wait till your dad gets home, it was, I'm going to call your uncle. <laughs> you know, and, and Uncle Leo, he stepped right up and did the best he could to be the father of the male figure we needed in our life. Yeah. And then my grandfather, uh, my landscaping knowledge. So when my parents got divorced in, uh, uh, oh, geez, what was it? Uh, 73. Mm -hmm. And my mom whisked us up to, from California to Idaho. I didn't get to play baseball. I was, we were four kids living with four other, five other kids in a household in Twin, in a small house, built for really four people. And we've got all these kids in there. And I was kind of acting out. And now my dad used a belt a lot. Leo didn't use a belt. He used compassionate, strong words and, and cons consultation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the old woodshed thing about go behind the woodshed. You know. Well, he took me to the woodshed, but he sat me down and we had a talk. And he told me, look, there's way too many kids here for you to be behaving like this. And you're the oldest of your siblings and you need to set a good example. And we just had a man to man talk. Yeah. You know, he says, I know you're mad and angry about your parents and all that. And I really wasn't even certain what they were doing. I didn't know they were getting divorced. I just knew we were moving, you know, yeah. that's how, abrupt it was so my mom was still in town she had to go back and sell the house and get packed up move and she's uh packing us up and uh we're uh she's still in town and i can't play baseball because they baseball was my life and there wasn't any place to play baseball because she had to get a coach get a team and sign me up and all that stuff and there was just no way to get me to practice and, you know, games and all that. So I decided that if I'm going to be stuck with all these kids, I'm going to go to my grandparents' house and spend the summer there. And my grandfather was a big six foot four, six foot two, six foot four, big husky German guy, 100% German, kind of a gruff exterior, but loving as all get out and patient as all get out. He had a philosophy that the kids would run away from him because they were getting in trouble. He used to chase them, but the trees, he'd get all scratched up because they'd go under the trees because they were short. And he realized they got to come home for dinner. <laughs> so he would just go home and wait till they came home and then he'd punish them. <laughs> so he was a very patient man and loved his grandkids. And 
my grandmother was a short, I don't even think she was, I think she was like four foot nine, four foot 10, uh-huh. Italian, 100% Italian lady. Okay. And it's like the odd couple married. Sure. She's all white. He's got dark black hair, still big guy, small, short Italian lady. Weird, weird, weird great marriage. <laughs> uh, but we said the rosary every night before bed. And so I decided I was going to stay there for the summer. And my grandmother's happy to have it. But she goes, there are some rules you're going to follow. And grandfather, pop-up, Noni and pop-up, as they were called, they they it, it were in cahoots with the rules. I mean, they were, you, yeah, you don't break the rules. And and Noni is the boss. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they tell me, okay, you live here, you don't work, you don't eat. Rule number one. So you got to work. Got They have a nursery, a greenhouse. They have five acres. You got to work. Mm-hmm. You got to earn your key. Two, you, we say grace before every meal. We don't wear our hats at the table for anything. You don't wear your hat in the house, basically. Mm-hmm. You come in the house, take it off. You eat everything on your plate. You take it, you eat it. Okay? And then every night before bed, we say a rosary. No ifs, ands, or buts. We say a rosary. <laughs> by candlelight, by an oil lantern. They turn off all the lights in the house. Everything was dark. The only thing lit was an oil lantern, the light of Christ. Hmm. Okay? Put right next to the statue of Blessed Virgin Mary, and you just stare at it. I mean, you, you're mesmerized by that one light, and you said the rosary by candlelight every single night before bed. No ifs, ands, or buts. So my grandfather would just take me around. It, he wasn't like, do this, do that. It wasn't very instructional. It was if I asked questions, he'd answer. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he just showed me. I learned by watching him do what he does. And I'm the only one out of all those grand, uh, grandkids, even our own children, I'm the only one in the nursery and uh, landscaping business to this day because I spent that summer with, with my grandfather watching him do. He loved what he did. And that transferred to me. So that's how I learned those few basic things about patience and, and being a good father. And, and then I, like I said, I had a lot of good examples around me. And I grew up in a very Catholic community in Twin Falls. I was going to say, very that family. It, it seems like that was more than just the seeds of knowledge <laughs> of landscaping and, and stuff oh. like that were, yeah, oh yeah. There was uh, actually some spirituality that was, that was taught to you and, and they took care of and, you and mind, body and soul. Yeah. And we don't have to just instruct or teach. We just have to live it. Mm-hmm. If you live it, if you live your life that way, yes, it's very easy for your kids to do the same. Yeah, exactly. You know, so anyway, so I, I was, so I would, I had three daughters and once a, once a month with each of them, I would take them out on a daddy daughter date. We'd go do something, whatever they want to do. Just so I could spend, because Lance required so much of our time, you know? I mean, he was the most demanding of our time because of his needs. Mm -hmm. So our daughters kind of, they understood that, but you don't want them to have to just understand that. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out a way to help them realize that they're helping by doing what they're doing, 
but they are still special. And so I would, I'd say, okay, next next Thursday is our night. You and I, what do you want to do? It's our date, you know, our daughter, daddy, daddy daughter date. Mm-hmm. And boy, I'd come home that day from work, and they were just so excited. Mm-hmm. And so we actually were homeschooling our kids because it was a lot easier to homeschool well, because Lance's needs, you know. Yeah. So there was no school night, so I could pick any night of the week that worked, and we'd go. So boy, it was like. Oh, daddy, we get to go do this, or we're going to go do that, or we're going to get some ice cream. And it was just her and I, one on one with one of my kids. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was so memorable. It's so, re- so good to have. And then what I would do is, is at the end of the night, the kids are in bed, ready to go. I'd go back out to my, you know, talk with my wife a little bit, of course. I'd go back out to my office till about one, two o'clock in the morning and do all my paperwork. Mm-hmm. Now I've got, 10 or 12 employees. I'm running 30 different accounts. I, I do commercial landscape and maintenance and I've, I've got a pretty good sized business doing a half a million dollars a year. And I've got to stay on top of things and got to do repairs and equipment and stuff like that. And I'd stay up in my shop or my office till one, two in the morning, get up at six, six thirty in the morning, start all over again. Did that for years, but you know, it, it, it's that part where I told you that, when God told me he was a blessing and not a burden mm-hmm. and, and how I survived those 34 out of 37 days, it, time, tiredness, sleep, it, it, it wasn't relevant. You know, it wasn't the thing I contemplate like, Oh, I need some sleep. And oh, you know, you know how people are, Oh, I'm so tired. I go, me, I just, it was just because I knew God was there mm-hmm. lifted me up holding me up, guiding me, keeping me moving forward. So it wasn't stuff I thought about, you know, I didn't even worry about finances. Uh, money's never been something I, I like, Oh gosh, I got to do this. I got to, I got the money. I got to have the money. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, Oh no, God will provide. Mm-hmm. It was those little things that people tend to worry about are the things that really weigh you down and prevent you from having a joyful life. And you said something about my humor. It's because I've always never worried about those things that, that, and they've always seemed to come about, you know, I would, you know, like something would come up. Well, I need a thousand dollars for this. And all of a sudden I'd get a job that was going to make me a couple thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, great. Thank you, Lord. And I was always there. So I was like, Hey, thanks God for watching out for me. Or, you know, oh, I need some sleep. Uh, well, no, you'll be okay. You know, <laughs> So let's talk about that. I mean, you're saying that that God has provided for you. Honestly, from what I know of your story, God provided a way back to the Catholic Church. Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, so after now at this point, my my son is 12, and he's uh, I'm still not a Catholic. And he's I, but and he's he's on, he's outlast he's outlived the predictions oh yeah. of all the doctors. Oh yeah, he outlived everything. So here's the here's the thing. We start getting comfortable with his recovery. We start thinking, planning for the future. Like we start planning, like okay, he's going to live with us the rest of our life. Yeah. He may outlive us. So we start planning that way. Okay. So now we're not thinking he's going to die. Now we think he's okay. What do we do thirty years from now when he's still with us? Mm-hmm. How do we provide? So I'm thinking about you know my daughters being the ones that take over his care. I didn't want to institutionalize them, all that stuff. How do we provide a nest egg, a living area? How do we take care of that part of it? So we start planning that way. Mm-hmm. And so 
and this is at age 9, 10, 11. He's had good health, doing well, starting to thrive, and things look good, and so we start planning ahead. Uh, so he's, in, in 2004, we're getting ready to go on a long trip. Son's going to go with us. We're going to take him to meet our extended, my dad's side of the family I hadn't seen since I was six years old. And we're going on a long vacation as a family. Well, in the middle of the trip, we get through Yellowstone, come out of Wyoming, we're in Cody. I get a phone call from, this is before, you know, iPhones and stuff. I get this phone call from Cody that the guy that was running my company while I was gone was quitting and taking a job in the oil field and he was leaving the next day. I have no one to run my business now. I've got several employees. I got a greenhouse operation and a landscape maintenance crew, and I don't have anyone to, to run it. So I have to turn back, go back home. We take the weekend to take get home, we, and we make it home. I My wife and kids take over the greenhouse maintenance, watering, stuff like that, sales. My guy that was in charge of the nursery is the one that takes the crew out. I had to go back to a business conference. So he takes over the maintenance crew and I go to this business conference and I come back. Now this is in August of 2004. October, early October, he's born on the 28th. In the 20th of October, he has a seizure, goes into the emergency room, they can't take care of him at this one because it's not the children's hospital. So they sent him downtown, Boise, to the children's hospital. And immediately they have to sedate him and put an intubate him with the breathing tube. And they, he's going to be in the hospital. They, they do x-rays, find out his lungs are, lungs are being plugged with, with uh, blood clots. So he's not transferring oxygen in the bloodstream. And the doctor said, we don't know. He probably won't go home this time. Now, after 12 years, we're thinking he's doing better. Now he's not going home. He turns 12 in the hospital. Hmm. The doctor says he can go home, but he'll be sedated and intubated the whole time for the rest of his life. He'll never wake back up out of this. So my Catholic faith that's still in me that I understand about the, the intervening of unnecessary treatment to keep someone alive comes out and talking with my wife. And during this sedation, my son's eyes open up and look right at me. And I immediately hear, dad, I want to go home. In a voice I've never heard, my son's voice never heard, other than his laughing, mm -hmm. never heard him talk words, but I heard this, I want to go home. I can't fight this anymore. I make the decision to pull the breathing tube out the doctor thought he might live three, a couple, three more days, and day and a half he was gone. I spent the next two years, I sobbed. I know what a broken heart feels. I know what Mother Mary went through with the loss of her son, sure. watching him being scourged. I know that broken heart because I've never felt such pain, such sorrow, such sob, such loss. Truly loved my son. For the next two years, Things aren't going good with my wife and I. I'm kind of like numb. Mm -hmm. I throw myself into work seven days a week. I stopped going to church. Not because I hated God. I needed something to do 
that kept me away from thinking about the loss, the sorrow, having people go, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, shut up. Stop it. Mm-hmm. He died six months ago. Leave me alone. My wife can't go into the old the house, his bedroom. So we sell our house and move closer to where our kids are going to a private Christian school this time. And we just, things just, we're not the same. Try to take them on a couple vacations, one to Florida, Disney World during Christmas. They didn't have fun. Took them to Hawaii. Kind of had fun, but it rained the whole time. And, you know, they weren't happy. That, you know, just know what is, you can't, you can't make anyone be happy with things or activities. It, you know, but I was just numb to the world. I worked seven days a week. I, I started leaving the church. My wife and I were fighting. I left all the church. My wife and I are fighting more because I'm working all the time. And, and, and she wouldn't say because Lance died, it's your fault. But I know that that bitterness is still there, that, that sorrow, that grief. Yeah. So we're just drifting further and further apart, being more angry at each other. And, and I, we're not trying to resolve anything. We're just being narcissistic in our own way to each other. So it gets to a point where she's just had enough. She has more to the story than that, but she decides we have this second house. It was being rented out because we, you know, we were making a lot of money as a landscaper, second house, start losing things, start to crash economically. I'm losing the farm and she didn't want to lose everything. So she bails on me. She takes the second house, lives in it. I'm stuck with the house I'm in now, but I love the house I'm in now because I love the country. And she just goes, we're better off as friends. Well, that was a lie. But anyway, she said it. She goes, I want a divorce. Took her eight years to divorce me. But while when she left me, I started thinking, you know, God, I'm really sorry for not. I started having, I was angry. I was seeking revenge. I was just, oh, I just all the time pissed off. And I knew that I needed to start going back to church. Mm-hmm. And my here's my reasoning for going back to church. I well, why I went to different churches. I couldn't go back into Meridian and go to that church because my wife is there. But if I start dating, it'd be awkward if if I bring a girl to the church and we run into each other. But that'd be awkward. So it's kind of stupid on my part. I'm still married and I'm thinking about dating. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was way lost. So one day I thought, okay, God, I need to go to church. Where do you want me to go? There's a church down the street from me, a couple of miles. It's Easter Sunday. I want to go honor and respect God on, on Easter. This church is full of people that wearing flip-flops, Hawaiian t-shirt, Hawaiian shirts, kids are running around, you know, and, and I really couldn't even concentrate on the sermon. It was just too much just chaos and it was no reverence at all in this church but i knew someone there and though that's why i went there because i knew him and as i'm leaving they said oh it's so good to see you i hope you come back and i mumble under my breath no way in hell am i coming back here as i'm walking out of the parking lot going to my car i stop and i go god i know i need to come back to church i know i need to be with you you're calling me back. I need to come back. Where do you want me to go? I don't like church hopping. Mm-hmm. They're just going from here to here to here to see what fits. I said, I go, 
So don't ask God for an answer if you don't want to hear what he tells you. So I asked God, I said, God, where do you want me to go? Almost as I say this, I hear my grandmother's voice telling me, she used to call down in California when she was alive and just tell us that she knew I wasn't a practicing Catholic, but she would say, I, I want to see how Lance is doing and all that, but just know that I said a rosary for you today. And she only called, it was long distance, it cost her money. She only did that like three or four times mm-hmm. over the couple years that he was alive before she died. And I come out to church and I ask God where he wants me to go. Again, don't ask God if you don't like the answer. And all of a sudden I hear my grandmother's voice in my head saying, I said a rosary for you today. And immediately I thought, I should go back and check out the Catholic Church. I wonder if they still changed. You know, I wonder if they still went down that liberal rat hole. And so I found out where the mass was in my in my uh, city, Caldwell. And I found out what the time was mass. And so I go, I'll go there. But I'll tell you, if anyone stops me and say, I've never seen you before, you can't come in here, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I go to church. I get there just an early enough time. I sit on the, well, actually, I went all the way to the middle because people like to sit on the edges and I want to sit in the middle so no one will come near me because I didn't want to be near anybody. So mass starts and it's like, I, I know that prayer. I know that. I know that's processional. I know those hymns, those songs. I, I, I say all the prayers. Some of the words had changed. It had been a while. It had been 25 years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 25, 26 years since I'd left the church. Some, some prayers had changed a little bit, but the set, the stand up, sit down, kneel, stand up, sit down, kneel was pretty much the same. Yep. Had the routine down. So I'm feeling it, right? I'm feeling like, hey, I'm into this. I get this. I, it's all, the church hasn't changed. Okay, but so when communion comes up, why well, go to communion? I'm still a Catholic. Forgot about the confession thing, but mm-hmm. still a Catholic. I go up and go to communion. So I, I go back a little bit. In the other non-denominational churches I was going to, when they would do their communion service, they would pass, you know, have you ever been to one? Yes. They pass a little biscuit around and, and this little cup of grape juice. Mm-hmm. Everybody grabs one and then they hold on to it while the preacher talks about it. Almost every time that happened, the preacher always talked about the value of tithing. I'm going like, what does it have to do with the Eucharist? Okay. Mm-hmm. What, is, what does it have to do with communion? Tithing has nothing to do with communion. When he'd spend 15 minutes talking about how tithing is good for the church and good for you and blah, blah, blah. Oh, and then, oh, take communion. You know, that was it. I'm going, these guys really don't know what they've got. Something was missing. I kept saying, something's missing. I something more mm-hmm. so when i ask god about where do i go and i hear the rosary and i go to go to church i'm called to communion. i i go right up i don't even hesitate i get up i get in line i go receive communion i received it in the hand i took the cup the blood the precious blood and i go back to the and by the time i get back to the pew i am tearing up i'm bawling i'm not sobbing like everyone's physically seeing me but i'm choked up I am weeping. I am emo- I'm going like, oh my gosh, this is what's been missing in my life all these years. And you know, this is 
that I knew that I had to come back to church. I had to come back to Jesus because of his precious body and blood. Mm -hmm. I knew what I had been missing was always there. The truth was right there. And I've always believed even more vehemently now in the body and blood of Jesus Christ is present on the altar. So I, I come out, I'm just all emotional. A few people don't know me, so they greet me. I start blabbing, you know, getting all, I'm all excited because man, I'm just like, oh baby. And no one told me I couldn't come, man. So I'm, I'm like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm back in. So I, I go to church for the next several months. Don't even think about confession. Don't even think about it. But I'm going. But see, here's the thing. God wanted me back, needed me back, wanted me back, knew I needed to be back so much that he was willing to sacrifice a little unworthiness so that I could be fed. That's the only way I can look at it. Mm -hmm. Because I was not receiving worthily, and yet it's what I needed. Because I truly believe. So Father Flores, at the time as our priest, he goes, I'm seeing a lot. He stops just before he does the concert. I'm seeing a lot of new faces in here. And yet I haven't seen you in my confessional. <laughs> and if it's been a while since you've been to confession, please don't come for communion until you go to confession. And it's like a V8 moment. Yep. Oh my gosh. I got to go to confession. Wow. I've been at this point, it's like 28 years mm -hmm. since I went to confession and and all that. So I go to confession. I say the first one didn't stick is the second one that really got me in. Cause I went back to my old habits, my old sin and ways, you know, thinking about dating and all that stuff after my first confession. Mm -hmm. But I realized, okay, I I'm not behaving as a, as a Catholic gentleman should. Cause I found out that you only had to confess your sins to reenter back in the church and started teaching confirmation shortly thereafter, became a knight, and, and all great things, okay? But when I went to that second confession, I went to Father Arnie, Father Arnie, who, who was a very smart, wise man. And I told him all my sins, all the things. He sat down and talked to me for like 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a confession that really made me change a lot of the way, you know, like stop watching R-rated movies and you know, stuff with basic pornography on it. Mm -hmm. It helped me a lot in a lot of ways. Cause I'm a single guy, young, still vibrant. And, and I thought those urges still need to be met, but you know, the Catholic church was a better urge, you know? So I'm, uh, I'm behaving better. I'm getting all fired up. Go to my first men's conference. I come back. I start a, I start a men's group. I, uh, I'm, Father told me, he says, man, you're so full of the Holy Spirit. And I said, you bet I am. I'm fired up, baby. Yeah. I got to get going. There's too much. I've wasted too much time. Yeah. You know, and and things have just slowly progressed. Uh, one day, I uh, rate our local rate Catholic. I would never listen to Catholic. I'd never wear a crucifix on my heart because I didn't want to be that kind of Christian. One that's always wearing it on their chest but not living their life right. Right. I thought, no. I need this on my chest to keep reminding me how I'm supposed to live my life. Mm -hmm. An outward expression of my failings, and yet he's constant reminder of what I need to do to change. So 
I start doing that. I start wearing cruise. The, this radio show, start listening to Catholic radio, this Salt Night Radio in Boise. They had an opening for a show, and I came up with an idea of having a men's ministry interview session. We start doing that, start getting some familiarity with talking on the radio and all that. But this was pre-recorded. We edited it out. It got, you know, then it would be put out weeks later, right? I'd do three or four interviews in a, you know, in a day, and then they'd get, over time, they'd get uh, released. So they decided to go to a live morning show, and they were going to drop the recorded stuff and go to the live show and ask me if I wanted to do it. And I thought, yeah, okay, I think I would. So now I got to be careful because now it's live. I mean, you, you got you can't edit out stupid things or dumb dumb things you say, right? Right. So it's live. But I don't want to have just me talking about men's ministry. I want to have a conversation. So my first co-host was Josh Dixon, who's another guy you should interview. Very good guy. Mm-hmm. He was my first co-host. He talked he talked at my men's ministry when he he's a revert too. So mm-hmm. he was Eddie Trask's first guest. He was one of my guest speakers at my group men's group. Yeah. And and so he's he was my co-host. Then he moved to northern Idaho and then recommended Eddie as my co-host. But I like having that conversation because I know some things. I don't know everything. I'm not one of those guys that studies a subject and then reverberates more of its more felt. It's mm-hmm. more emotion. It's more logic and reasoning for me. Yep. It's all going back on my life as what I've gone through Sure. as to what I bring forward. Eddie is studying to be a master's in theology. Josh was studying similar stuff. So they were the brains and I was just a talker. It's my show. I started off, but you know, we have a great conversations and we really love doing it. Then I, but the thing was, we only have 12 and a half minutes to talk and stuff. And we just get going. So does, does Eddie get to say anything? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm the bigger guy. So I, you know, no, eh, no, I let him talk or just like Dave, he gets to talk when he wants to. No. Yeah. No, I think it's pretty, pretty good. It's, it's probably 55, 45, 60, 40, yeah. because, you know, I do the introduction and I start off the topic and then we have a conversation and there's two other people that talk to as well. Eddie's a great so, guy, by the way. He, he is a great guy. So, We'd have these before show conversations and after show conversations. Mm-hmm. And we kept saying, man, we really need to do a podcast because this is good stuff. You know, good, com- good question. Good conversation. Yeah. So they got a podcast studio down there and I started doing a podcast. I think I'm on episode 37, 38 now. Good for you. Now I'm going to start doing something because I only do it on Wednesdays after my show because mm-hmm. I drive all the way 45 miles in a town to do this. So I try to do podcasts when I'm there. But now, as you can see, we're, I'm, I'm trying to set up my own little podcasting studio so that I can interview people like you from a distance mm-hmm. at a more convenient time at my own, at my own time or my own convenience in the comfort of my own home. Sure. And I'm not, and then I will put them together, send them to my bro- producer. She will then edit you know, make it all fit and all that. And then, mm-hmm. then, then put it on the podcasting episode. So uh, that's what I'm doing. But, you know, I, 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 I know I wouldn't be where I'm at today without the life and death of my son. 
I don't even think I'd be, if my son was still alive today and my marriage was still intact, which it probably would be, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't even be Catholic. So you never know what, how you get where you're going or how you're supposed to be where you're supposed to be in the, in the grand scheme of things. So I don't look at the loss of my son as a, uh, something to be vengeful or hateful or despising God about. I look at it as he lived long enough to teach me how to live on his behalf, how to share his love, how to, how to share the message of God's miracles, God's graces, God's mercies. He, he lived long enough to teach me how to be a better man. Wow, that's great. And, and I, I don't think I'd have been a better man without my son in my life. I, my son would have been a healthy, normal child. I'd probably be the same bombastic jerk I was before I got married. Mm -hmm. You know, more ego probably, you know. <laughs> and so uh, it, my son's life humbled me. It, it showed me tender mercies, love, a deep love. So I don't, so at his funeral, I was asked, well, do you have any regrets? Or, you know, if you had to do it all over again, would, absolutely. If I was, if, if, if my son was born today, not, not that I want a child to live as a handicap and, and many, all those problems and die, but I wouldn't want to change what that light, what that part of my life did for me so that I could have an easier life or a better life. I don't wish that on anybody, but if you are given that circumstance, you are given that child, that type of kid, love it, embrace it, be the best parent to that child you can, because those children need the utmost love and care and will provide you with so many more blessings. You'll never know how great that life will be for you when you embrace it instead of running away from, you know, 98% of marriages fail when a, when a handicapped child or special needs child dies, hmm. 98% because they, they blame each other, they blame themselves or, or the loss is just so great. They can't stand to look at the other person anymore because mm -hmm. the reminding of that loss. So if you do have your child, if I could teach anyone, anything, take care of your marriage, love the child and know that if that is ends in a death of that child, that there's a greater life that lives beyond that. And you do that child a disservice by not living your life as they loved you. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Pat King, it has been such an absolute pleasure to get to spend some time with you here. Our time has run quite a bit over I, what I usually way do. Way long. Way long. But Sorry about that. No, I didn't even tell you the whole story. I didn't tell you all of it. Well, we're going to have you back. We, I definitely want to have you back again another time. There's a lot in this episode to take away. There's a lot to digest on this. And uh, I, I thank you so much for coming and sharing just such raw pain and the beauty, the absolute beauty that comes from suffering. I don't think I've ever had anybody that explained suffering and, and was able to make it as beautiful as you have. So I thank you so much. Well, thank you.
So for my guest, Pat King, my producer, David Imhoff, I'm down the hall, Dave, always praying that your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.